Hey, everybody, I hear this is midterm week. Is that right? Anybody have any tests? Yeah, papers do. Anybody at all stressed? Anybody at all tired? Anybody at all tempted to use this next 30 minutes as a study break? Yeah? Hey, would you do yourself and God and me a favor? Um, I know what it's like to be in your spot, but I know there are times when God wants to intersect with our lives. And I know we just prayed, but I'm going to pray again, ask us to pray again. I want you to pray for you that somehow in the midst of this stressful week, you'll have this open moment where maybe God could nudge you and say there could be something new for you today that would be transformative in your life. So let's just bow just a second, and you ask God to do that for you, will you? And then I tell you what, I'll do my best to get us done early so you can get to class sooner than otherwise or lunch or someplace. But most of all, we want to give God room to work. Let's pray. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to take you back in time. Back before I had this little badge that says John Bray, Dean of the Chapel. By the way, somebody last week said, I know he's the Dean of the Chapel, but I don't know his name, so it's John. In case those of you who care. Those of you who don't care, it's still John. And it was back before I wore a sports jacket, because back then I only wore a suit jacket to church on Sunday, because that's what you did at church on Sunday. But I never wore a sports jacket any other time. In fact, I wasn't even wearing a collared shirt. I was wearing a gray T-shirt and blue jeans and running shoes, because that's what I wore to class most of the time. This was closer, except a whole lot less wrinkles and a little bit more hair. And I was a guy with a problem. I was in a class, and it was at, it was at McCann. But it wasn't McCann Coffee House, because that didn't exist back then. It was McCann Auditorium, a building that sits about where Elder Hall now sits. And, and my problem was that it was, a, it was the first warm spring day. About 75 degrees, the end of March, 1st of April sometime. I don't remember the exact date, but I do know it was the first really warm day. And I had a class in Macon, and, and, and they had pews, and I had my assigned spot. And a buddy of mine said, you want to go golfing? Now, you got to understand something. I didn't golf in those days, but it was the first 75-degree day. And I felt like I had an obligation to God and the weatherman. The only problem was that uh, this was a class that was just practical stuff. How to do weddings and how to do funerals and how to lead board meetings. And what do you do if you go to visit someone in a hospital? And I was a pastoral ministry major, so that seemed to make sense that I should know those things. And there, there weren't any tests. They just brought pastors in as guest lectures. Your grade was based entirely on attendance. If you, you could miss three and still get an A, and then you've missed six, you know, more than three went to a B, and more than six went to a C, stuff like that. And I'd already missed all the classes I could miss and still get the grade I was willing to get. But it was 75 degrees. And so what I did is I told my buddy to wait for me, and I went in, and I took my assigned spot in my pew, guys on either side of me and people in the row behind me and the row behind that and the row behind that. And I waited until the guy in the balcony took attendance. Then 
prof turned around to start to write on the board, and I slid out of the pew to the floor. Stunt double. <laughs> That's it. Thanks, Gable. And I crawled under the pew, made my way out of the chat, got to the back, looked around, noticed no one was watching, went out, went golfing, and uh, I confess. You have to ask yourself, uh, what went on there? And I'm, I'll make three observations before I start to unpack a little bit. Uh, number one is uh, most college men are only one step away from stupid most of the time. And in fact, I don't even know if I need to use the word college as a modifier. Many men are just one step away from stupid much of the time. I think the second observation that I would make is it's easy to make choices without thinking of the consequences. I mean, what if one of my classmates had been sitting back there and as I crawled underneath saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, to get past their legs, what if one of the cla my classmates said, dude, Bray, what are you doing down there on the floor? See, you can explain, uh, I overslept. And you can explain, I swiped and the swiper thing didn't work. You can explain the dog ate my homework. It's really hard to explain. I was on the floor, crawling out underneath a pew, hauling my book bag with me. I mean, right there, right there was just, I, I, I was a moment away from a visit to the dean's office and a week or so off school, purely uh, at his direction and not mine. The third observation I would make is sometimes I made decisions in those days not based on God's best for me, but just based on what I wanted to do, what seemed like fun at the time. And that's not just a decision I made in, in a classroom. Sometimes I made that decision in life. Bless you. I'll take that as an amen. Sometimes I just did what I felt like doing. So why did I crawl under the pew? I mean, aside from the fact that I was a guy and most men are only one decision away from stupid. I think it's because I had an impression about God's will that I'm betting some of you have. And that is that God's will is confining. That to do God's will means sometimes you're stuck in boring that if I did God's will, I would end up in a missionary, as a missionary in, in the Congo, and I didn't want to be a missionary, or worse yet, that I would be the pastor of a small church in a small town in a forgotten part of America and just be stuck there. Now, I knew, I knew theoretically that that was not true. I could talk to you about Jeremiah 29 where he says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to prosper you. Plans to bless you. I, I, I knew that and I knew in James chapter 1 it says that, that good gifts come down from the Father of lights. I knew that. I knew Matthew 7 says God the Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. I knew John 10 where Jesus said I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. I mean I, I knew all those and if, if I'd been sitting in a classroom taking the test, I would have aced the test. But in the test of my real life sense of God, those were not the thoughts I had, God's will was somehow limiting. 
and I was going to do my own thing, and I did it frequently that way. Actually, when you look at the very first sin of the very first humans, Adam and Eve, basically, the tempter said, did God really say you couldn't do this? Is he really limiting you this much? And he said, no, we can eat from all these trees except for this one. And he said, you're kidding me, right? God's really that limiting that he won't let you eat from this tree? And Eve saw that it looked good and looked good to eat and it might give wisdom. And it seemed like a logical thing to do. And so she said, I can do my thing instead of God's thing. Adam said it too. And basically, humankind has been saying that ever since. Where we say, this seems to make sense to me, so I will do it. I can decide for myself what will make me happy. That's why I found myself crawling under a pew. That's why I sometimes said, well, I know I shouldn't, but. I know it's not the best thing, but. I, I know I'm supposed to, but. That's why sometimes when you're sitting in chapel and God uses some speaker to nudge you, you don't immediately jump up and say, yes, Lord, here I am, all of me. You ignore it sometimes. Sometimes you say, yeah, but. In fact, I've been a pastor long enough to know that some of you will spend your entire life saying you are a follower of God, but not following very closely. And some of you will spend your life trying to follow God and you will try to live in obedience, but you will do so without joy because you will continue to see God's will as limiting and confining rather than freeing and satisfying. You'll always be tempted to crawl under a pew and only one decision away from doing so because you have a view of God's will that just sort of misses. Well, I want to talk about God's will and how to discover it in, in, a, in a way that keeps you from pew crawling, in a way that brings joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of my time with you talking about today. And we're going to use a passage of scripture that I'm guessing a lot of you have memorized at one time or another, maybe in a Bible class or maybe, maybe in youth group or maybe in Sunday school or maybe someplace. Romans 12, 1 and 2 starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, at a, at a purely theological basis, as a kid who grew up, I knew God's will was perfect. And I knew God's will was good because God was both good and God was perfect. But I have to confess, I never really sensed his will as pleasing. In fact, I think some of you probably identify when you hear a speaker talking about doing the will of God, you think that sounds hard, negative, difficult, confining. That's how I felt. So let's talk. Paul starts with the word therefore. Anytime in the Bible you see the word therefore, you look at the verses and chapters before it to see what the therefore is there for. And so the first 11 chapters of Romans talk about mankind's fall into sin and God's plan of redemption. 
that God in his great mercy provided Jesus Christ while the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and the first 11 chapters just unpack that. And now at the start of chapter 12, Paul says, in light of everything we've been talking about in the last 11 chapters, therefore, there's a, there's a response that should be expected from you. And he says, in view of God's mercy, we ought to do something. He said, what I'm going to tell you might sound hard at first. It might sound difficult at first. It might be, say what? But in view of God's incredible mercy and love for you, it makes sense. It's your reasonable act of worship. And then he writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now the people he was writing to would have immediately had a mental picture. They wouldn't have pictured a folding table. Uh, they would have pictured an altar. On it would be wood or a fire. They would have pictured an animal being killed and, and part of it being offered or all of it being consumed. Whether you were Greek or whether you were Roman or whether you were Jewish, they all had altar sacrifice and burnt offerings as part of their religious experience. And the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I'm all in for God. And that's what Paul writes. And that says, that just makes incredible sense. Let me be honest with you. If you have a pew-crawling mentality, it does not make sense. It makes sense theoretically, but not emotionally to you. It sounds risky to be all in for God. But in view of God's mercy, in view of his amazing grace, in view of his love, it makes sense to trust him because God only wants the best for you. And sometimes... We're ready. Sometimes there are moments where our desire, our eagerness, our hunger for God is intersected by the Holy Spirit. And he says, now is your time to say yes. And he nudges you and you say, yes, here I am. All that I know of me, I give to all that I know of you. And I'm a living sacrifice. But Paul knows something. Paul knows that this offer yourself as a living sacrifice is a decision that you make in a moment of time, but it's lived out one day at a time. It's one big decision followed by a lot of little decisions. One after another, after another, after another to obey. A friend of mine uh, once told me, and I don't think it was original to him, but it's stuck in my mind that the problem with being a living sacrifice is you have the tendency to crawl down off the altar because you're alive. Maybe you've experienced it. You've said, God, I'm all yours. I'm completely yours. My feet will go where you want my feet to go. My hands will do what you want me to do. I'll, I'll guard my mind. I'll think pure thoughts. And, and you're saying, I'm this sacrifice. And all of a sudden, the tempter comes along and says, hey, there's a party off campus. You ought to go over there. And you go, that does sound good. <laughs> or you're sitting at McCon and you look over and on a table of something you've always wanted and it's just sitting there and nobody's come back for it and nobody's come back for it and nobody's come back for it. And the tempter says, you could go pick that up and you could take it into the game room like you're taking it to Lost and Found, but then you could just keep walking. And your hand wants to pick it up. Or... Or your roommate 
uses his computer or her computer to go on a website you shouldn't go to, and your mind says, just take a look one time, and pretty soon you're down off the altar, doing your own thing, and you were a living sacrifice, but you're not now. Can you identify with that at all? Because I can. That was my life. Little by little by little, saying yes to God, then doing my own thing, saying I will do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I'll be okay. And Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You need to understand that offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice is not just a chapel time decision. It's lived out in daily commitment. I grew up in a do not conform to this world church. And it seems to me that much of my life was spent hearing don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. Real Christians don't. And then they had this list that they gave us of things we weren't supposed to do. And the heart behind it was okay because they wanted to protect us. It's just rules don't have the capacity to change the heart. And when you're a pew crawler, they just create resistance. Now, this is not part of Paul's scripture, but I think it's an observation I would make. Some of us, some of us, uh, as we live in this Iowa environment, there's part of it that is a um, don't do rule place as well. We sign an agreement, a community agreement, as we come to live in this community that we will not do this thing and we will not do that thing and we will not do this other thing. It's, there, there's some of it that's a don't conform to this world environment as well. And I understand that. It's an agreement we come together, that we come together to, to, to try to focus on the right things. But rules don't have capacity to change the heart. That's why Paul writes, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not just say, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't, but let God do something in you that causes you to start wanting to do what you should do, what you want to do. See, there's a risk in allowing the prevailing worldview to shape our thoughts and our minds because the worldview is different than God's view and it shapes us into a mold that is not that, that doesn't live for Christ and there are a lot of consequences for not living for Christ. Now while Paul doesn't exactly talk about it, I think there's a little bit of a risk of living on a campus like this or living in a in a real Christians don't do this church because we get conformed to that environment and we can be conformed as rule keepers and yet not have a transformed heart. That's why maybe you or some of your friends who in high school were struggling with faith and living a, a life that was inappropriate for someone who called themselves a Christ follower because they were hanging out with a world culture, went to youth camp, and in youth camp made decisions and had a fabulous experience and said, my life's going to be different completely. And then they went back to high school and everything went back the way it was because they weren't transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. They were just conformed to the rules that went on at youth camp. And that happens to some of us here, where we say, I've got to follow the rules because I don't want to get in trouble and this and that. But unless we get to transformed, we'll never discover God's will is pleasing. We never will. And unless we get to transformed, 
will always be tempted to be pew crawlers. To say there's got to be a way that I'll do it my way. It seems more satisfying. So how do we get to transformed? That's the big question, isn't it? And the answer is, I'm not really sure. I don't have a formula for you. Except to talk about what Paul talks about. And it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're here on the altar and you say, God, I'm all in. And then don't be conformed. Make a decision that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with a value system that's not a world value system. I'm going to live by a faith value system. And I'm going to do it long enough and consistently enough until I give God chance to transform me on the inside and to transform my mind. I'm going to focus my mind and ask myself, am I thinking God thoughts? Am I reading God's word? Am I offering, offering him my mind? Am I disciplining my mind to think his, things his way? Am I listening to the whisper of the Holy Spirit? As the Holy Spirit whispers to me, am I responding positively? Am I, am I doing those things little by little by little until, until I begin to discover that I'm not as prone to crawl under the altar as I used to be? Or under, un, under the pews as I used to be. I'm, I'm more desirous of being on the altar saying, God, I'm all in because I'm experiencing something different. It involves staying in the living sacrifice position long enough until our habits begin to change, until God begins to change us from the inside out. At one point, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel talks about how we have a heart of stone in our chests. And God wants to take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. A heart that wants to do what he wants us to do. I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. Can I tell you about my experience? I was in another church-like building here on campus. And I was standing and sitting in a pew. And I was listening to the speaker talk about this whole question of are you willing to be what God wants you to be? And it came time for the invitation and we stood in the band. The, it wasn't a band back then. God forbid that. Uh, those were sinful. There was a piano and organ. And they were playing some invitation song. And he said, are you willing? And students left their pews and flooded to the altar. And I just stood there. I, I would not move and I, I i wouldn't move because quite honestly i had told god i was willing to do what he wants me to do a hundred times two hundred times i don't know how many hundred times again and again sometimes at an altar sometimes at a devotional time only to prove myself unwilling a day later or two days later or an hour later found myself back into that mold of felt like pew crawling made sense. And I said, I will not go to the altar unless I know I can say for sure I'm willing. And I stood there, and they sang, and they sang, and they sang. I think we probably sang 512 verses. Not really, but they just kept singing. And I don't remember the conscious decision I made. I really don't. I remember standing there, and the next thing I remember in my mind is being out in the aisle, walking down the aisle towards the altar. And, and as I came towards the altar, um, 
There was one spot open, right almost in the middle. The whole altar was full. There was just one spot, and it would happen to be right in front of the speaker. And he was just standing there waiting. And uh, it was like he was waiting for me. Like we had a divine appointment. And I knelt there, and he said, are you willing to be what God wants you to be? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. Because I've told God a hundred times, two hundred times, five hundred times what I just told you. And then he asked me a question that began to change the trajectory of my life. He said, are you willing to be made willing? I could say yes to that. I'm willing to be made willing. I'm tired of pew crawling. I would love to tell you from that moment on I never crawled under another pew. Well, physically I did not. But spiritually I sometimes did. But something happened in that day that began me on a path of breaking old habits and learning new ones. A path of falling more and more in love with the Lord. Experiencing His will as good, perfect, and pleasing. And here's my guess. My guess is there's some of you who are ready to make that decision today. You're just tired of pew crawling. And you've told God before that you're willing and you just prove, prove yourself again and again not. But the God Spirit is nudging you right now. And you know this could be your time. And I know that there are tests waiting us. And I know that there are papers to be written. But I know there's nothing more important than getting the God part of our lives right. And we've got plenty of time. So here's what's going to happen. The worship team is going to be singing with us. We'll sing with them. And we're going to stand. And I'd love to invite you to come and pray and say, God, I'm all in. Living sacrifice time. And if you say, I don't know if I can say that, but I'd love to. I'd invite you to come and kneel and just say, God, I don't, I, I don't know if I can say it honestly. But here's what I can say honestly. I, I want to be able to say that. And this could be the moment that your life begins to change. So I'll pray for you. And I'll pray that God nudges you and you say yes. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, here I am, Lord, on the altar, all yours. Dozens of you are making that decision. God loves it when we respond to him. He wants the very best for us. Now our decision is, what do I do later today and tomorrow and the next day? And it's to continue to say, Lord, here I am. Whatever you want, I'm yours. Lord, we bow before you now. We lay ourselves down before you now. And we ask that you do something in us that begins to transform us until day by day, week by week, month to month, we begin to look more like Jesus. And other people might look at us and say, there's something about him that reminds me. Oh yeah, it must be Jesus. We ask for that in your name. Amen. Now go 
and live a life like Jesus desired you to live.